0: Hey, it's easy to be a pastor on days like today. You know, it's, it, makes it, it makes it all worth it. Hey, listen, in 1970, Congress passed a law, President Nixon signed it, called the Organized Crime Control Act. It made underground gambling activities illegal and stiffened the penalties for people involved in organized crime syndicates like the mafia. But it also gave the Attorney General the resources and authority to protect witnesses in high-profile cases called the Witness Protection Program. Under the Witness Protection Program, this is what happens. Say you know some bad stuff about a mob boss and you're at high risk of intimidation or even death leading up to the trial, so the U.S. Marshals will come in and remove you and your family from your home and your town and your whole life move you to a safe house for a time, and then plant you in a whole new city with a new identity, a new job, a new house, new schools for your kids. I mean, they give you a brand new life. Have you ever wished you could start fresh like that? It's like, hey, I wish I could just wipe the slate clean and start all over again. Now, maybe you wouldn't want to change your name wouldn't want to leave your family and friends behind. You wouldn't want to leave your hometown. But if you could have a fresh start, you'd be there for it. Maybe you're there today. Maybe today you wish you could just turn the page of your life and start completely fresh. And if that's you, I want to tell you that you can. That our passage teaches us that a new life is possible. That everyone who trusts in Jesus will begin to live a brand new life. So this morning, if you are in the position where you wish you could wipe the slate clean, the guilt that you're carrying, that you could sort of just forget and move on from the past and you could start fresh, I think this message is for you. I think God brought you here today so you would have to look at Romans 6, 1 to 11 and you'd have to hear me preach it and you'd have to deal with the Holy Spirit who's going to do everything he can to take the words that come off the page and out of my mouth and press them into every recess of your heart. That's why I've been praying that he'd get the job done and he'd do exactly what he wants to do. We couldn't have chosen a better passage, really. Many people think that the book of Romans is maybe the greatest book in the Bible, and it's really hard to argue. Um, If you're going to choose other books, you might choose the Gospel of John, or 1 John, or maybe Isaiah, or maybe the book of Revelation, because it has hope for the future. But you'd be hard-pressed to choose a better book than Romans. And I think the reason that is, is because it contains the Apostle Paul's most mature and developed presentation of the hope of the gospel. He'd sharpened it and refined it in various settings and cultures around the Roman world, so that When he opens up the pages writing to people he's never met before, he could say in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first, and also for the Greek. That's incredibly good news, because by chapter 3 he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that in Romans 6, the wages of that sin is death. But there's hope. Because God demonstrated his own love for us in this way, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So by the time Paul gets to chapter 12, or chapter 10, he could say with confidence, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's beautiful. The gospel encapsulated in 16 chapters. And because Paul had preached it in all kinds of places to all kind of people, he knew the kind of questions that we would raise, the kind of objections we would throw out there. See, we'd hear his message of salvation by grace through faith, that a person comes in a right relationship with God, not by the quality of the life they've lived, but by trusting in Jesus to save them from their sins. And we'd hear this message of grace, and we'd say, well, then what's the point in changing my life? If I can have peace with God through Jesus and not because of what I do, then why does what I do matter so much to God? Why do I need a new life? Why not just go on being the same way I've always been, but add Jesus to the mix? And Paul's denial of that question contained in chapter 6, couldn't that be more forceful? And he raises it preemptively to remove it from our arsenal of objections, so that when we hear the sermon preached, we don't say, yeah, 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 but grace. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? God forbid that we should go on living in sin. We've died to it. And so that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What, what does it mean to die to sin and be raised to newness of life? And I've got to show you three truths about trusting Jesus to help us understand what Paul says. And the first truth is simple. When you trust in Jesus, you're united with Him in His death and resurrection. That's what Paul says, point blank, in verse 4. We have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is Paul's thesis statement for the entire chapter. He's going to say it in verse 4, and then he's going to open it up and explain it all the way through the end of the chapter, even getting down to the nitty-gritty of what it looks like in our lives in verses 12 and following. We're dead to sin and alive in Christ. But the question is, what does this mean? How can we, who are quite obviously, I mean, I'm alive, right? This is the spooky season, but I don't think I'm a ghost. I'm alive, and here I am in my flesh. What does it mean that I've died with Christ and been raised to live in newness of life? Well, the language Paul is using is the language that theologians call union with Christ. And maybe an unfamiliar term to you, maybe sort of strange-sounding union with Christ. But it's deeply rooted in Jesus' own teaching. For example, in John chapter 15, he told his disciples to abide in me, he said, and I in you. For as the branch can't bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. See, for Jesus and for his followers and for the Apostle Paul, knowing Jesus or trusting Jesus is more than agreeing with certain facts about him. Like, I believe that Jesus is God's Son and that he lived 2,000 years ago and he lived a great life and then he died on the cross and all that stuff. Yeah, I believe that. That's not trusting in Jesus. It's more than accepting a new standard of behavior. Like, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, so now I can't live that way anymore. Now, Paul believes, because Jesus teaches, that when you know Jesus, your life is different, verifiably different. Jesus says we are to abide in him, we are to follow in him, we're to make our home in him by rooting our life in his teaching, learning to see the world as he sees it. And Jesus' followers took this teaching and they built upon it so that Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 1 that the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And there's nothing good that comes into your life or into my life that doesn't come because I am united with Christ. That every blessing God can give me comes on the basis of my union with Jesus. That means that when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes you and connects you to Him with an imbreakable bond. Something that can't be pulled apart or shaken. Because you're in Christ... The perfect blood that He shed on the cross covers your sin so that you're forgiven. Because you're in Christ, His perfect life of obedience is credited to your account, and you're justified in God's sight. You're declared righteous, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did, and you're united to Him. You're adopted into God's family, sealed with the Holy Spirit in Christ. So that when the Father says to the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, He says the same about you. You're my child. I love you. Nothing can separate you from my love. His Holy Spirit works inside of you to conform you to His image day by day and moment by moment. And in our passage, Paul says, because we are united with Him, we are united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. And perhaps you noticed, those are the words I tried to say over your claps and cheers earlier when I was baptizing Amanda, Casey, Kiana, and Aaron. I think every Southern Baptist pastor says those words when they baptize people. They don't teach you that in seminary. That's something that's caught, not taught, and we say it because the pastor who mentored us said it. Nobody ever said, you have to say these words. Because the words aren't magic. They don't make it so. If I didn't say those words, baptism would have the same significance. They're not mystical. They are meaningful. Because they remind us of what God has done for us in Christ, that we are buried with Christ through baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. See, union with Christ is this concept that sort of lives outside here somewhere, and some egghead in a seminary or ivory tower thought it up. You can't put your hands around it or point to it because it's invisible. It happens spiritually outside of the view. And who knows where it happens, when it happens. Some people can name the day and time when God saved them from their sins. And other people, it happens gradually. But you know what Paul says? That you can always look to your baptism. He ties it directly to it. He says, We're buried with Christ through baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. Why such a close connection between something that's so invisible and hidden from public view to something that really is unique? in the Christian life. It's a one-time thing that happens to us as men and women of God. Why? We believe that baptism is symbolic. It's a sign of some spiritual reality. We don't believe that baptism saves us. God saves us by grace through faith in Christ. We don't believe baptism is necessary for salvation. that you have to be baptized or else you're not really saved. Now, the thief on the cross was there with Jesus dying and stuck up for him. And he said, today I say to you, you'll be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. That man wasn't baptized, and yet Jesus said with confidence that he'd see him in heaven. So it's not necessary for salvation. But what we do believe is that baptism is the normal way a Christian publicly professes their faith in Christ. It's not necessary, but it's normal. It's not indispensable. You can be saved to be a Christian without being baptized. But I'm telling you what, it sure is helpful to know that when Satan tempts you to despair, when he reminds you of your sin, that you can point back to the day and maybe even the picture to say, No, I was baptized. I stood before my friends and family. I publicly confessed my faith in Christ, and God did it to me. God united me to Jesus, and I'm hanging on that. So baptism is the normal way we mark our union with Christ and in His death and resurrection. A way to think about it is like the wedding ring. On June 11th, 2011, I married this woman over here. Put a ring on it and locked it down. (laughs) The best decision, apart from following Jesus, that I ever made. You know, I walked into the chapel at my home church. And I stood up at the front of the thing. And y'all know I cry. Y'all should have seen me that day. Waterworks, okay. The back doors open. And there she was, the most beautiful woman who ever lived. A bride perfectly adorned for her husband. And I lost it. Okay. I walked in single that day, and I stood at the foot of the altar with the pastor and with my bride-to-be, and we exchanged some vows, and because I was crying, I hardly remember anything, but I know at some point she took out a ring, not this one, the original ring is at the bottom of Dog River in Mobile Bay, okay? <laughs> but she took a ring, and at some point in the ceremony, she slid it halfway on my finger and said some vows. And at some point, she said, With this ring, I thee wed. And she slid it down onto my finger. And I did the same for her. And when we left the altar and walked back out and the people cheered us, we were married. We came in single, and we left married. Now, the ring itself didn't make me married. The vows did. My public profession of my undying love did. The covenant I made to her before God did. But I'll tell you, it sure is helpful to have this ring on my finger so that every time I look down at it, I remember. And everybody who sees me knows that I belong to Aaron Mills. Baptism was the same way. It doesn't save you, but it's a helpful reminder for you, and it's a public confession to the world that you belong to Jesus. And because of that, it's virtually inconceivable from a New Testament perspective that any Christian would be unbaptized. It's inconceivable. There's no such thing in the Bible of an unbaptized Christian. makes no sense. It's an oxymoron. The normal way people mark their faith in Jesus and union with Him is in being baptized. We call it the first step of obedience. It's the first thing you do after you give your life to Jesus is to follow Christ. And because of that, when Paul says that we were buried with Christ through baptism into death, I think he really means, okay, or it's just as if he was saying, the person who trusts in Jesus and is baptized is buried with Christ into death. But that raises the interesting question. What part of me dies? Here I am, still walking and living, still got the same old personality quirks and bad behaviors. What's up? Where is that part of me that's dead? Well, that's what Paul tells us. Second. The second truth you need to see is that everyone who's united with Jesus in death is set free from sin. Look again at verse 5. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. So what part of you dies when you trust in Jesus? Paul says it in verse 6. Your old self, your old man, was crucified with him in order that your body of sin might be done away with. Now, this is strange because Paul says, yes, new life in Jesus is possible, but in order to get it, the old part of you, the old life, is going to have to die. Now, this is uncomfortable. And the reason it's uncomfortable is that you and I are masters at minimizing our sin. We're in the habit of downplaying every bad thing we've ever done by comparing it to other people, by adjusting the rule set for ourselves and saying that what we did wasn't that big of a deal. But the Bible's pretty clear about our condition, that there is a part of us that needs to die. See, God created our world and prepared a perfect place for people, and he made the first man and the first woman and put them in this wonderful garden. And maybe you know the story. He gave them a rule. Don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. For the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And though there was only one rule, just one rule, I'm talking about one rule, you know? One rule. They disobeyed. And when they saw the fruit and saw that it was desirable and good for making one wise, they took of it and they ate of it. And in that moment, their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked and they made fig leaves for themselves and they hid from God. Now, the Bible calls that act sin. It's a disobedience. It's a transgression of God's law. And in that moment, the perfect fellowship they were created to enjoy with God was broken. They lost it forever. Because they lost it, their condition was passed on through every generation of mankind who's lived since. And that as soon as you and I are born and capable of determining right for wrong, we add to their disobedience with disobedience of our own. So it might be, hey, don't touch that, it's hot. And you're the kid, and you've got to touch it because it's hot. And you disobeyed your parents, violation of the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's don't go there. What do you do? You go there. Don't do that. You do it. Don't say those words and you say them. As soon as we are able, we add to their sin with sins of our own. There's a part of us deep within, inescapable, part of our fallen nature, bent in towards ourselves. We're not born neutral, blank slates, ready to conquer the world. We're born with a proclivity to sin. Paul talks about it. Ephesians 2, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins you and I used to walk in, following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's at work among the sons of disobedience. He says we were following the lusts of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our bodies and our minds, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's pretty brutal in its honesty and assessment. The Bible says that we all, like sheep, go astray. We turn everyone to his own way. It says God looks over the face of the earth to see if he can find anybody who seeks after him. He says there's no one who's righteous. Not even one. This is where we are apart from Jesus. This is our old self. We're not innocent victims of some vindictive and cruel God who delights in making commands that are too difficult for us to obey, gets pleasure out of destroying wicked people, he actually says the opposite. I take no delight in the destruction of the wicked. He says he's patient, not wishing that any of us should perish, but knowing that his kindness should lead us to repentance. We are rebels against our Creator and are bound for just judgment. But then Paul says that when we trust Jesus, something amazing happens, that our old self is crucified with him, and our sinful body, our body of sin, is laid next to him in his tomb, and out we come, totally different, free of sin's dominion. And this is the reason your life feels so out of control. It feels like you never can make the fresh start you want to, why you can never turn the page, why it seems like no matter how hard you try, the same stuff keeps happening to you. It's because the part that's responsible for the mess you're in needs to die. It's the only way. It can't be cleaned up. It can't be fixed up. It can't be rehabbed. It's got to die. And when you trust in Jesus, you die, and you're set free from sin. That's why Jesus, in actually, his invitation includes this up front. If anybody wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To follow Jesus means to follow him to his death. And when you follow him there, you are set free from sin. The old you laid in the tomb next to Jesus, the new you walking out in newness of life. That's why we sometimes say this, that when you trust in Jesus, you are saved from the penalty of your sin. That though you are far from God and under his judgment, when you trust in Christ, the slate's wiped clean, you're forgiven. You're saved from the penalty. That's why we say that one day you will be saved from the presence of sin. Someday in heaven, you're not going to have to fight against sin. You're not going to have to fight against the sinful actions of other people. You're free from the presence of sin. But moment by moment and day by day, you and I who have trusted in Jesus are being saved from the power of sin over us may not happen moment by moment. And listen, if you got baptized today, I hate to break it to you, but following Jesus is tough. And every day you have to take up your cross and you have to follow him. Some of us have forgotten that. Some of us have forgotten that. We forgot a long time ago. We knew it, that following Jesus was a daily decision to die to ourselves, but we've moved away from that. If you were baptized today, don't let that be you. Daily crucify yourself to follow Christ. And moment by moment, you will see the power of sin broken in you. Which brings us to the third truth that Paul explains. That not just as everyone who trusts in tr- Christ is buried with him in death, but also that anybody who is united with Jesus in his resurrection experiences new life in him. you got to die, but God gives you new life. He says in verse 8, If we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too must also reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Everyone who's united with Jesus in his resurrection experiences new life in him. And I think this is, I know this is the one distinguishing feature of Christianity. I know some of you maybe aren't Christians today. Maybe you think about other religions and worldviews and you think maybe they're all the same. They all teach the basic morals and the basic values. You just be kind to other people and everything works out in the end. But this is the feature that distinguishes Christianity from all other world religions, okay? Christianity is not built on our feelings or philosophy, but it's built on the historic fact of Jesus' resurrection. So Jesus left heaven, came to earth and live a sinless life, perfectly fulfilling God's plan, perfectly obeying God's law. Now, At the end of his life, his enemies crucified him. And when they took his body down and gave it to his followers so they could lay it down in a borrowed tomb, they figured the story of Jesus' life was over, just like every other person who'd ever lived. You kill a person, they're done. But something happened different with Jesus, that after three days in the tomb, he came out again, resurrected, and Jesus wasn't resuscitated, like that he got the life back that he had before, and somebody took an ancient defibrillator and shocked him back. That didn't happen. Instead, what the Bible teaches us is that God gave him new life. He imparted to him something totally different than what he had before. It's not resuscitation, it's impartation of glorified life. And Paul says when you're trusting in Christ, when you're united with him, you begin to live resurrection life now. I know that the song says, What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ, great and... What is it? How does the resurrection line go in the uh, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery? Um, We just sang it. Y'all sang it. You know these things, right? So it says, uh, What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Stunned and resurrected as we will be when he comes. Christ is resurrected, and someday we're going to be resurrected with him too. Forgive me for my blunder. I should have written it in my notes. But the resurrection that we're hoping for isn't simply something in the future. It's not like one person says, pie in the sky when you die. Like, hey, life is bad, but someday it's going to get better. Now, Paul says resurrection is the present possession of a person who trusts in Jesus. It's yours now. Jesus says it, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You'll never perish. You're going to have everlasting life. It's going to carry you through. It's why he tells the woman at the well. Listen, if you would ask me, I would give you living water, and you'd never be thirsty again. Some of our students know this. We talked about this last week. You'll never be thirsty again. And in fact, the water I give you will become within you a well of living water that springs up to eternal life. He's going to give you that now. A well that bubbles up and overflows. Eternal life is not simply future, but it's the new reality for the person who trusts in Jesus. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has passed away, behold the new has come. That's why he could say in Galatians 2.20, I think this is his personal life verse. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live right now in this moment, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a clean break, a fresh start, that when you trust in Jesus, you're set free from sin and turned loose to live a new life for God. I think this is why baptism is, for me, such a powerful and poignant sign of what God does in us. Because you enter the water... Bringing with you all the scars and sins of the life you lived. You haven't been following Jesus. You were born alienated from him, and you've heaped up as much sin as you can in the short life or long life you've lived. You enter the water dry up to your waist, and then somebody makes you plug your nose and says, buried with Christ through baptism into death and pushes you under, laying you in a watery grave, right? Completely submerged and buried. And then when you're dead, as dead as you could be, they say raised to walk in newness of life, and you're lifted up, raised up. And I know, look, baptism doesn't save you, so it's not like you went in dirty and you came out clean. But it points to something like that. That when you came to Christ, you brought with you all that you were. The old self, the body of sin, which heaped on heap, sin after sin. But when Jesus saw you, he wrapped you up, covered you with his blood, took hold of the scruff of your neck and said, this one belongs to me. And the old you is gone. So that when you leave the water, you are completely new. You are a new creation set apart for God. So, this morning you ought to know that whether it feels like it or not, if you're trusting in Jesus, you can experience a brand new life today. It may not be the fresh start that the Witness Protection Program could provide you. Maybe you don't have to change your name and all that stuff, but I'm telling you, just As real as that fresh start is, when you trust in Jesus, you begin to live a brand new life. Do you need to do that today? Are you ready to begin a new life? Are you ready to be brutally honest about the life you lived up to this point? To acknowledge, like the Bible does, that you are a sinner alienated from a holy God by your sin? Are you willing to admit what God already knows about you? And are you ready to die to yourself? To be buried with Christ? To begin from this point forward living differently? Living the resurrection life that He promises? I promise you that if you'll come to Him, He won't turn you away. He's invited you here. He says, if anyone would come after me, that's you. And at any time, he says, today's the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And in this moment, you can leave it all behind. Start fresh. So our band's going to come and prepare to lead us in another song. And as they do, would you bow your head with me? I want to ask you two pointed questions.